started by saying, once upon a time, and I just stopped, what would go on inside of you? Like, well, what happened once upon a time? No one ever says once upon a time and just stops. You want to know the details. What happened once upon a time? Or if I said, you'd never guess what I did yesterday. And I just stopped. Like, you're just never going to guess it. So we're just going to leave it there. Now, for those of you who want to know what I did yesterday, I spent 12 hours putting in a dishwasher. Now, the dishwasher wasn't the issue. It was everything that was connected to the dishwasher. Because once we connected the dishwasher, we found a leak. And you know what was right behind that leak? Another leak. You know what was behind that leak? A leak. Four trips to Lowe's, and I still have a leak this morning. That's right. That's right. I appreciate that and you uh, volunteering to come fix that for me this, today. That is, man, that was, that was, or Jake, maybe Jake. No, really, really, Jake did. Jake had six trips to Lowe's yesterday. Four of them were with me. Uh, so that, that would be what you would never have guessed. But if I would have said, you never guessed what I did yesterday and then left it there, you'd be like, well, I'd like to know. You'd want to know the details. And that's kind of where we find ourselves in our sermon series. We've done a lot at this point. We've talked a lot about what is coming. But we're kind of sitting in a position where we're kind of wondering what's next. So let's just take a, take a quick review of where we've been and then get to the meat of where we really need to go. Here's where we've been. So here's, the, here's a summary statement. This, this is something we've said for the last several weeks. The gospel is the story that brings salvation to the world, and it carries the full weight of God's authority demonstrated by the presence and the power of His Spirit. So when the Apostle Peter stands up in Jerusalem to preach the first public Christian sermon, we remember that, that there was the sound of wind, tongues of fire on their head, and they're speaking different languages. And we noted that that is the full weight of the presence, power, and authority of God. And it's coming behind and inside and in front of, wrapped around the story of Jesus. He hasn't put his authority behind the story of Zeus or the story of Artemides, or the story of Diana. He hasn't put that authority behind any other myth. He's put it behind the true story of Jesus. So his story is the story. That's something we explored early in the sermon in Acts 2. Then the second thing is something we dealt with last week. Jesus is the center of the story of Israel and the world, and he must be the center of, uh, in the center of our line of sight. There are a lot of other things that we could look at, but for Peter and the apostles and for God himself, Jesus is at the center. He chose a man long ago named Abraham, and Abraham would be the father of many nations, and through Abraham would come one person who would bless the world, and that will be Jesus. Jesus is at the center of that story. Jesus fulfills the story of Abraham. He fulfills the story of Israel. He will fulfill the story of the world. So he sits at the center, and then we put him at the center of our line of sight, noting that a lot of things get in way of our line of sight. And sickness and family trouble, a lot of things can get in the way, but we put Jesus at the center. So up front, with those two summary statements, all we've really done is said once upon a time. That's really what we've done. 
Because inside of both of those is not the meat of the story of Jesus. We're gonna, we still are left with these two questions. Here they are. These are the things I'm wondering. We haven't even got there yet. What about Jesus is important? Another way to say it would be, what about him do we tell when we tell his story? So what we've done to this point is we've just talked about how important his story is. But that's like saying once upon a time with no story. So now the question is, what's the story? Like, what is the thing you tell people? So if you're going to go proclaim the gospel, what do you put inside of the gospel? What's the thing you're telling people? Well, that's where we go next. That's where we step in our next part of the journey as we walk through this first sermon that Peter gives in the book of Acts. Turn with me, if you will, or just look at the screen. Acts 2. Acts 2. Now, you'll note very quickly, we're not walking very far this morning. Just one verse. Just one verse. I could have gone half a verse, but I know there'd be a revolt. So, one verse. One verse. Here it is. Acts 2, verse 22. He says this, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. That one verse, those few words, tell us a lot about the story of Jesus. It's this first moment in this first sermon where Peter steps into the details of what you tell someone when you proclaim the gospel. And here it is in this one verse. There's one key thing here. There's one thing about this verse we can't miss. It's what we'll sit on for the rest of the morning. It's this, it's this summary statement. Jesus lived a real life in a real human body in the power of God. Jesus lived a real life in a real human body in the power of God. This is central to what Paul, uh, what Peter is saying in verse 22, and it's going to take us a long way then to getting us to verse 23. And we'll go there next week. But here, there's some things we need to explore there, because it has a lot to do with your life today in 2021. This one verse has a lot to tell us. This one key thing about Jesus has a lot to teach us, has a lot of application. I hope it can get down into your living room and family room and your yard this week. I think all of this has something to say about how we live so we'll, we'll take that journey. We're going to unpack that verse in three sections. Three sections. I say three parts of that one verse have everything to do with this one statement about Jesus living a real life and a real human body and the power of God. So let's go. Let's unpack first part of that verse. Jesus of Nazareth was a man. Here's what I want us to take away from that. He lived on earth in space and time. So you see what can begin to happen. The story of Jesus can just become the story of Jesus on a cross and in the resurrection. And sometimes we think that's all you need to say about Jesus. But Peter here, first public Christian sermon, what does he do? He's talking about Jesus' life. The life he lived. And part of that involves the fact that he actually lived in time and space. I don't know about you, but sometimes... Sometimes it's been a big struggle of mine, not so much in these last several years, but really before I hit some key writers that helped me work through this, I would often think about Jesus as something, as someone, or really something that just exists in the church building, or just exists in this book, this Bible, or when I got the Bible app, just something that existed in an app. 
we get to the point where Jesus is just something we do on a Sunday morning. It's someone we hear about. He's someone that lives very far away, somewhere out in the distance. He's way up there. He's really not concerned with how I do my yard work. He's definitely not concerned with what happens when I'm doing a home project and a little minion comes and, and takes tools and swings them inappropriately. He's definitely not concerned about that. Jesus is something that, is something that happens in the church building. Maybe an hour, if you're lucky, on a Sunday morning. And then you can actually pick and choose when you go and you, you, you hear about Him maybe once a month, maybe twice a month. You kind of just pick and choose. Jesus is something way out there. He becomes abstract. He doesn't really deal with my real life. Just someone we talk about in church. Kind of like we talk about the President of the United States. You ever met the President of the United States? I've never met the President of the United States, by the way. Now, he's on my TV screen all the time. He has been my whole life. But I have never met the President of the United States. Never interacted with him. Just a, so, in some ways, often the news, even, is abstract. It's way out there. And Jesus can quickly become that for us. Maybe even more so because we don't have him on our screens all the time. But here we learn that Jesus is actually very real. He's not abstract. He lived in a human body. That's something the apostles will talk about over and over again. This is a key point. And this is something that when, when we look at how, how Luke wants to tell the story... Even of Jesus, yes, Luke wrote the book of Acts, but before that he wrote the Gospel of Luke. And when he goes to tell the story of Jesus, and he goes to tell about the birth of Jesus, you know what he does? He doesn't tell the birth of Jesus as an ancient myth that happened long ago, once upon a time. He tells the story rooted in time and space. I know we're past Christmas, but come with me back to that famous Christmas text, Luke 2. Here's how Luke tells the first the, the story of the first days of his birth. In those days, Luke writes, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now this was the first census that would be taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee, uh, in Galilee to Judea, Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Right there, Luke roots us in history, in a particular moment where the Roman Empire was king, where a particular governor was ruling this region, where a particular man with a name who lived in a particular town went to another town with a woman who was having a real baby. That's a real human life. I often do a thought experiment when I read the Scriptures, particularly all of those towns and cities that I don't even know how to pronounce. And I don't even know where they are. I mean, I can look at a map, but I've never been there. I don't understand the topography. I don't know where the mountains and the valleys are. I often will put American cities into the text. So can you imagine if that text would have said something like, in the days of Joe Biden, when Roy Cooper was governor of North Carolina, there was this man, we'll call him Terry, and he lived in the town of Roanoke Rapids. Particularly, he was born in Raleigh. Always had a heart for Raleigh. He's really a metropolitan man. And he had to go to Raleigh for the birth of his child. Can you, now you've placed it. Now i got you in time and place. You see, that's what Luke's doing. He's putting you 
in the real world. And so Jesus is a man who had a real life in the real world. It's very important. Now, if we had to, if we had to put a shot, like a, put a dose of theology into Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, if we had to just infuse it with theological depth and then condense it and say something really profound that said the same thing, it would come out like John 1.14. This is what happens when you do all that. This is what John writes, saying the same thing, just with more theological depth. John 1.14, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. You have flesh, I have flesh. He became human. So He lived in a real body. As a baby, He really cried. He may even had colic. He probably kept his parents up at night. I mean, real human things. And this is what John's saying, that the God of the universe in the Son came and dwelled among us in human form. And the Christians, when they told this story, they made sure that they put this part in. Every time they told the story, they put this part in. And over the years... They began to condense that story, and now we call it a creed. But in the early 4th century, the early 300s, they took all those stories that, as they were told, and they condensed it into what we now call the Nicene Creed. And there's a history even with this creed. Some of you may even know it. It's a famous creed. Many denominations say it weekly. Here's one line of the Nicene Creed. This is how important. It makes its way through the centuries. Of the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became Man. Some translations now say human. But every time the story is told, it's the story of God the Son becoming human with real flesh like you have right now and I have. So that's part of the story. Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Second section, let's unpack that second section. Here it is. A man accredited by God to you, uh, by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs takeaway here is he lived his years on earth in the power of God. We're going to really unpack this as we go. That in power of God is really important. The Jews wouldn't have been surprised with a prophet doing miracles. Moses helped part the Red Sea by the power of God. Elijah and Elisha, they raised people from the dead. But with every prophet that performed miracles in, the, in Israel's story, they also had flaws. And they never were the one. They were never the one to rescue the people from their enemies. And so the, so, so the prophets hoped, Israel, inside of their story, hoped there would be a day when there would be one person who would bring the power of God among His people, bring resurrection, vindication for His people. One day it would all be made right. One day there would be someone that would walk the earth and would give sight to the blind, would bring light in darkness. And you know, there's this one famous passage in Isaiah where the prophet captures a, capture, uh, captures a glimpse of the vision of a person that would come to earth and bring that kind of new life right where we are as human beings. Here it is, Isaiah 61, just the first, first verse and the first part of the second verse. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness uh, for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's a vision the people were hoping for. There would be a man one day who would come among us 
who would perform miracles, signs, and wonders. But he wouldn't be flawed. He wouldn't fail this time. Interestingly, when Luke tells the story of Jesus, this makes its way into the story. Luke chapter 4, here's a scene in the life of Jesus. And we'll see how Isaiah shows up. Luke 4, 16-21, Jesus, that is, he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. And he, I just want to note, I don't usually stop. Jesus went to church regularly. Be like Jesus. Okay. feel like someone should make a bracelet. What would Jesus do? I feel like that would be really kind of crafty and invented. All right. So it was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. It is. It is. It was really on him. Do we have the next one? There it is. There it is. All right. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He just said, I'm that man. And they weren't looking into the sky. They weren't, they weren't uh, gazing into the distance, hoping for some abstract thing to come. They looked at a human being sitting right there with them, just like I'm looking at you and you can turn and look at someone next to you. They looked at a real person. All that promise, all that hope, all the miracle signs and wonders, and it was all in a human being. Flesh and blood. This is fulfilled today in your hearing. And just one last moment in the life of Jesus John the Baptist, you know, proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah. Well, there's this moment where John the Baptist is in prison and he's wondering, is Jesus really the Messiah? And so he sends some of his disciples to Jesus. And here's what happens. Luke chapter 7, verse 20 through 22. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind and so replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus goes about doing real healing with real bodies, restoring things that are broken. People with real diseases, real, real flesh hurting, and in a touch it is healed. It's a foretaste of what comes in the new creation. He doesn't touch everyone. He doesn't see every sickness. But those that come to Him, where He is, they are healed. And it is a sign that the power of God is literally working through Him. So that means that the power of God is not just something spiritual way up in the sky, something we can't access. No, the Spirit of God, all of that power is moving through His body, energy, so that when it touches something broken, it heals again. That's what's happening. And it's a sign that that one to come has come. And it's a hope of what's to come. All of that happening in a human body. 
third section, last section, here it is, the shortest of the three. As you yourselves know, that's what Peter says right at the end, as you yourselves know, I think it's important here, take away his life was not a secret. There's no hidden knowledge here. He didn't go around in the whole of his life trying to hide everything he did. There were moments where he would only teach a certain number of his disciples. There were times he would heal and then try to keep it secret. But on whole, he moved from town to town, healing so everyone could see. This wasn't, this wasn't light put, it under, put under a basket. This was light radiating for anyone to see. It was public. It was so public that when Luke goes to write his account of the life of Jesus, he doesn't sit in a room, silent, asking for God to give him just holy inspiration, new knowledge that no one else has. You know what Luke does? He goes around and he does what any good reporter would do. He starts talking to eyewitnesses. There are that many people around that he can actually move around the whole region asking Tell me about this, Jesus. Tell me what you saw and heard. So that means when Peter stands preaching, there are many people who saw him, felt him, talked to him, or they knew someone who did. So when Luke writes the gospel, look at how he says it. Luke 1, this is how he starts the whole story of Jesus. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word uh, of the word. And with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. I went around and I did my due diligence and I talked to all these people. Because Jesus didn't go and do his miracles in a cave. He did them so we could see. And you know what would happen if, if they would have written down everything Jesus did or all the stories to be told? Well, one apostle gives us a glimpse of what would happen if you tried to do that. At the end of John's Gospel, he writes this. John 21, 25, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And that's something. This was not a man trying to hide what he was doing. He was out in the open, which means you always have to come to Jesus and make some type of decision. Because he doesn't leave you the option that he's hiding. So these are the pieces. These are the pieces. These are the pieces, the three sections that take us to that one big point. Summary, here it is. Jesus lived a real life in a real body, flowing with the power of God for everyone to see. That's Jesus. Now that's a lot of study there. So we've got to get that on the ground. That's got to make a difference for your life and my life. I think it does. I think it has a profound impact on how we live. So I'm going to go two places here. First one, here's the first application. Let's get it down into real life. Jesus understands our lives because he lived a real life too. Did you know that? Jesus lived a life where he got sick. He got hungry. He was lonely. He got sad. Do you know he hurt? You know, there were times where he didn't even have a place to lay his head down. This is Jesus. Interestingly, I'm not just making this application out of nowhere. The early Christians made the same application. and They say it better than I can. So if you'd let the Bible actually now pull in for some application, here it is. Hebrews 2.18, the Hebrew writer says this, because he himself, that's Jesus, suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. 
don't know about you, but temptation's real. I mean, you could feel it. Jesus felt it. He understands. And in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Isn't that good news? That when you sit in the hospital room, scared, not knowing what the next step is, Jesus knows what that's like. When you sit at the bedside of a loved one dying, and you are wrought with grief, yet still some hope, you know Jesus understands that. He's not distant from your body. He knows what it's like to lose a friend. He knows what it's like to cry because he's sad. You know Jesus in those moments doesn't give you an essay. He'll give you tears. He'll give you comfort. He knows what it's like. He lived in a real body like you did. That means your body matters. Let me draw us to that second piece of application. Here it is. Our real lives can flow right now with the power of God. This is really important. I sometimes think that we have this idea that, that we have to be in some perfect setting to finally experience the power of God. Or we need to be really excited in our emotions to feel God. Do you know that the power of God is with you right where you are? So that when you are frustrated with your kids, or you are happy with your spouse, or you are mad at what's going on at work, when you experience all of that, the power of God is right there. Because the power of God will be where you are in your body. Not unless you have figured out a way to be where your body isn't. I understand you can be places virtually, but you're still not really there. That's why we call it virtual. Because you're not there. No one has ever killed someone else virtually. You can't stab someone through a computer screen. You can with words, but I mean physically. You can't do it. You can do it in your body. God is with you where you are. That's very important. That means that that means what you do in your real life is where it matters most. It can't matter where you're not. You know that I'm a big fan of Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard says it really well. I want to quote him here. This is just in a teaching, so I've just transcribed this. You can't find, you're not going to find this in his writings. It's just in a small teaching he did. Here it is. This is what Willard said. Jesus came in flesh and blood to reclaim fully the whole domain of matter. And then we, in spiritual formation, use our bodies to receive the power of God. And it's intended out from... Uh, and it's intended from out of our bodies would flow living water. It actually works. You can learn to send from your body the joy and peace and love of Christ. And it's in your body. If you're going to be a person of peace, so you're going to be a person that radiates joy, where else does that happen but in your body and on your face? You can't radiate joy where you're not. You can't be a patient person where you're not. And so we literally have access to the power of God through our bodies. We have this idea that sometimes the spirit and the flesh are opposed. No, God's in the business of taking the flesh and reworking it. That's why one day we will have a new body. Literally, you will have a physical body. Jesus took his body, the resurrected body that could show someone real holes, someone who could eat fish. 
A resurrected body could go and have a meal. You and I will have that body, but it will be radiating with love and joy and peace. You will finally have patience. There will be no more pain and death. And all of it will happen in a new body. But even in this body, ah, power flowing. I remember just over a year ago, I sat with a woman who was dying of cancer. Many of you know her. And I saw that woman full of peace and joy. Who, who knows they're dying and yet smiles? Who does that? Who, who has their body withering and yet radiates endurance and love? That's someone who has the power of God flowing through them. You see, this person's flesh was deteriorating. But the power of God was still flowing. And it's the thing that shone brightest. And one day, if I have the opportunity to know I'm dying, I want to be that kind of person. That's who I want to be. I don't want to be a person riddled with sadness I don't want to be full of grief so the only thing I talk about when I'm with you is how sad I am and why did God do this with me. No, I want to be like that woman who stands there, sits there, actually laying there as she struggles to take a breath. But with every breath comes peace and joy because Jesus literally is flowing through her body. I couldn't x-ray her spirit. I could see her body and I saw joy. I hope that's what we aspire to. Do not hold on to this world so tightly that if you get a terminal diagnosis, you think it is the end of the world. It will not be the end of the world. Not if you're with Jesus. There is no end to the world if you're with Jesus. So don't be the kind of person who lives without hope. There's hope. Be sad. It's okay be sad. And when your family really stinks and trouble is at home, it's okay be sad and frustrated. But know that God will work right there where you are. All right. Quick next step. Here it is. Let's end it here. Ask God to give you strength as you do the next right thing. Here's my call to you. Get it down right where you are. And the most practical thing for you is to do the next right thing. I don't even know what that is for you. What is the next right thing? Literally. Let me give you an example. Ethan could be flawless on the iPad as he, as he directs the online service for us. But if I come down off the stage and he's missed a slide and I'm watching it happen, i got a couple options. I can with a hot mic, which happened the other day. Can you believe it? I said something a little bit unkind on a hot mic so everyone online could hear. If you want to know where it was, you're just going to have to go search every service and find out where that was. But I could be rude or I could gently tap, give a reminder, and we move on, knowing it's fine. So you know what my next right thing would be? To be generous. To just be patient and generous. That'd be my next right thing. That seems really minimal, doesn't it? It seems very, uh, actually quite boring. That doesn't seem very holy and spiritual. But you know what I'd be in that moment? Sitting next to Ethan, having to make a decision how to treat a human being. And so my next right thing would be there, and so then I'm asking God's power to help me be generous. Because when I want things to be right, I want them to be right. I don't ever want them to be wrong, and I want to control it all. So in that moment, the next right thing is to let go and let God's power move in that very 
minimal moment. So whatever your next right thing is, you let God's power move through you. Now I always write a take-two script, you know, because I, I film this two-minute summary of the sermon every week, and we post it online. In the script, I use this example. I don't know. Maybe this will this will step on some toes. Maybe the next time someone cuts you off in traffic on 10th Street, you'll be generous, and you won't show them any of your fingers. I'm just letting it sit. Just letting it sit. Or when you're driving up Jackson Street and the person forgets that the speed limit's 25 and not 15, you won't ride their bumper the whole way. I've never struggled with this this week. I didn't struggle with it on Tuesday. And just making up hypotheticals. The next right thing is to let the power of God move through me and patient back up, let off the gas. And enjoy the slow ride. Enjoying the scenery in ways I haven't. Do you see how this works? Let the power of God move through you. Because your real life matters. Let me pray for this. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to sit just with one verse, unpack it, and see that everything you have done through Jesus matters. And our life matters. The domain of matter matters. So help us do the next right thing by your power. Pray that.